So Luke chapter 2 from verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law requires, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, And spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Telling others about Jesus is hard, isn't it? I mean, evangelism is difficult. We often struggle away, feeling out of our depth and, if we're honest, pretty inadequate when it comes to this area of our Christian lives. But I don't know about you, but Christmas is that time of year when we get a bit of a fresh lease of life when it comes to telling our friends and our family about Jesus. There's a bit of a buzz. There's a a genuine excitement about telling people about the real reason for Christmas. And maybe you even managed to kind of pluck up the courage to invite that person along to the carol service this year. And maybe this year was the year when your friends came along and now they're up for reading Uncover With You off the back of the carol service. But maybe, like my friends, they weren't up for coming. Maybe they seemed really interested, but at the last minute they had to pull out for some emergency Christmas shopping. Maybe they even came along, which is really cool, but quickly it might just seem to be a thing of the past and you've been away from them for two weeks now and you're going to go back to school or to work tomorrow. And you think things are just going to go back to the same as they were before. No change. So we sit here at the start of 2016, and some of us might be pretty discouraged when it comes to evangelism. But however we're feeling, God's Word is a safe place, isn't it, to go to, to give us courage to press on this year. 
And, and Luke 2 does just that by speaking into a couple of issues which might tempt us to give up when it comes to speaking about Jesus. Because one of those issues, one problem we have is often that we have a wrong view of who Jesus is. And the other problem we have is that we often have wrong expectations when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to telling our friends about the Lord Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, Hannah, we've just had a passage read about Jesus as a baby boy, maybe six weeks old. What on earth has this got to do with evangelism? Well, as hopefully we'll see, this passage has everything to do with God's plan for the whole world, which means, therefore, it has everything to do with telling people about Jesus. So at the start of Luke's gospel, we've, we've arrived at the climax, the high point of a big story, the Jewish nation, the story of Israel. Back at the start of the story, this people group were chosen by God to be his special people who would live under his rule, created to reflect his character in the wonderful place that he'd given them to live in. And yet, as time went on, they rebelled against him, they turned away from him and his word and turned towards other gods. And God said that he would judge them for their rebellion against him by sending their enemies to overtake, to destroy, and to rule them. Yet at exactly the same time, in almost the same sentence, he also promised to send a rescuer, a messiah, a good king who would save them from all their enemies and enable them to walk in his ways. And here we are, about 700 years down the line, and there are whispers that the king has arrived. There are new prophecies. There's a baby born of a virgin. There are angels singing in the skies. The Messiah has come. And Luke introduces us to him in this passage here. It seems that he's out to kind of nail something in particular. And we start off in verse 21, where Luke writes, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. We can't miss it, can we? The Messiah is Jewish through and through. And Joseph and Mary haven't missed a trick when it comes to following the law concerning their baby. And in case we missed the point, Luke winds up this section in verse 39 by saying, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. And when it comes to the Jewish story, this is ticking all the boxes. This baby is the Messiah, the king they've been waiting for. And he's a thoroughly Jewish Messiah too. He's a thoroughly Jewish king. God's plan to rescue his people Israel is right on track. And it's the moment in the story, isn't it, when you know that a hero has arrived. It's like in um, The Matrix when Neo starts kind of dodging bullets. You know the hero's arrived. And, and maybe in Harry Potter when you know, Harry survives... Voldemort's curse, you know that a hero has arrived in that story too. In the next scene, we meet Simeon in the temple. And of course, fitting with the story, he's a devout Jew. He's a man to whom God has promised that one day he would see the Messiah before he dies. And today's the day, and he heads out into the temple courts and finds Jesus. He picks him up in his arms and he praises God. We don't actually know how old Simeon was. We're tempted to think he's an old guy, but the Bible doesn't actually say how old he was. He might have only been a young man. But I don't know if you saw his contentment in verse 29 
now that God has kept his promise to him, now that he has seen the Messiah before he has died. He says, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. This is a guy who's not desperately clinging to life to live a life of fulfillment. He's totally content now that he's seen the Messiah, now that he's seen God's King. But as this devout Jew takes this Jewish Messiah in his arms in the middle of the temple, the center of the Jewish world, he says something extraordinary, doesn't he? And it's our first point this afternoon. The Jewish Messiah was always planned to be a light for both Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish Messiah was always planned to be a light for Jews and Gentiles. Start off in verse 30 where Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now on the surface of things, this looks like a big surprise because you've got Jesus the Jew in the arms of a Jew in the Jewish temple being called a light for the Gentiles as well as for Israel, as well as for the Jews. Now, this simply looked like on the service, like the Jewish king coming as part of the Jewish story. But when we take a closer look at what Simeon's saying, it shouldn't come across as a surprise. Simeon's words are laced through and through with the words of the prophet Isaiah, who was writing 700 years before this moment. So we've got this six-week-old baby. It's being described as a light, which kind of works in a couple of different ways. And the first one is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So way, way back in the Jewish story, when the prophecies were being made about this Messiah, who would rescue his people, we're told again and again that this rescue plan is way, way bigger than just the Jews. Listen to what Isaiah said um, about the, that God said to his Messiah back in um, 700 years beforehand. He wrote, It is too small a thing for you, the Messiah, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of, of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now this wasn't some kind of new thing that Simeon introduced. Saviour of the world wasn't a title that was kind of thrust upon Jesus a few centuries down the line after Jesus had got a following. No, this was always the plan. God had always intended that his king would be a light that opened blind eyes, who led people into his presence, a light that revealed just how wonderful it is to be part of his family. And I don't know if you've ever been on Google Maps or Google Earth um, and, and maybe zoomed into Bristol, and there you can see all the streets we know and love, like you know, uh, Corn Street, White Ladies Road, I don't know, Henley's High Street, those kind of the roads. If you then take your mouse and just scroll outwards, if you scroll outwards, you kind of see Bristol in the context of the UK, don't you? And if you keep on scrolling out on Google Earth particularly, eventually you'll get a small globe on a background of black or black sky with a load of stars. And it's then that you realise the scale of the Earth that we live in. Yeah, Bristol still exists and is a relatively important place. But the story of Bristol is set within the context of a far greater story, the story of planet Earth. And in the same way, the, the Jewish story was only ever meant to be one story in the massive narrative of the story of humankind. And that story is the greatest story of how God had created human beings to be his people, a people who would live under his rule and reflect his character in the wonderful place that he had given them to live in. 
And the story carries on about how we rebelled against him and turned from his word and turned to other things instead. And how God says that he would judge humans for their rebellion. Yet at the same time, in virtually the same sentence, he also promised to send a rescuer, a messiah, a good king who would save people from judgment and enable them to walk in his way. And in spite of all this, the Jewish story carried on and and was woven into the fabric of this big, big story. And Simeon carries on in verse 32 and shows a second function of this light. It's also a light for glory to your people, Israel. And again, this is imagery that comes straight, straight from back in the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah in chapter 60, where this was written to Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises on you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. God had promised, through the prophet Isaiah, that this light, the Messiah, would come out of Israel. He would, in other words, be a thoroughly Jewish light. Yet this light would also be the hero of the story of the human race. And the promise to Israel, to the Jews, was that this would bring glory to them. And so Jewish people, like Simeon, were waiting for the day when the eyes of all people would be turned to Israel on account of the Messiah. Now, I don't know if you've managed to get to the cinema yet to see uh, the new Star Wars. Um, Without giving too much away, the start of the film centers around a small planet, an insignificant planet called Jakku. Yet out of Jakku comes a hero, a hero who is set up as the one who will finally free the galaxy from the tyranny of the dark side. Yet now the hero of the galaxy has emerged from Jakku. You can imagine that the way that people are going to talk about that planet now. It's no longer just an insignificant planet somewhere in the corner of a galaxy. What a place. All eyes in the galaxy will be turned towards Jakku. It's the place from which the hero came. And in the same way, now the hero of the human race has arisen from Israel. All eyes will be turned towards her. It will be for her glory. God's promises to humanity have come through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And I think what Luke wants us to do is to see the the trajectory of the Messiah. He's a Jewish Messiah coming out of the Jewish story, but he's also the final piece in the puzzle in the story of humanity too. In other words, he's always been for all people. The Lord always planned that he would be the light that brings revelation to people, the light that opens blind eyes and sets prisoners free from the grip of sin to live as his people. We mentioned back at the start that one of the reasons that we are often tempted to stop speaking about Jesus is because we have a, we have a wrong view of who he is. Because we know on paper, don't we, that, that Jesus is for everyone. We'll sign up to that but we quickly slip into the mindset that he's actually just for us. And I think maybe one of the reasons why we do that is because we live in a culture which says to us constantly that, yeah, your Jesus is fine, but just keep him to yourself. Don't be so arrogant to think that everyone needs him. And I think that has slowly crept into our way of thinking. And so we think that Jesus is just our king, or at least he's king of our church. But frankly, that's about it. And we come here on a Sunday and we're more than happy to sing songs about how he saved us. But on a Monday morning, it's all too easy to forget that he also came to bring light to all. And just as he wouldn't take a lamp and put it under a bowl in your house, 
Jesus is meant for everyone. He's a light for all people. He's meant to bring revelation to everyone in the world. That was always the plan. And I think that we need to often kind of scroll out from our map where we're looking at just our kind of world that we're living in in Bristol to see how Jesus has come to bring light to the whole world. And so that means that when we commend him to the guy who sits opposite us at work, maybe on the desk opposite you, or the person who sits next to you in chemistry, or the hairdresser as they cut your hair, or the goalkeeper in a hockey team, it's not arrogant or irrelevant. We're commending the saviour of all, the hope of the nations, the hero of the story of the world. A story that every single person and workplace and community and people is part of, whether they realise it or not. I guess perhaps a question that that leaves us with is, if Jesus is that light that brings revelation to all people, then, then why doesn't everyone see who he is and how, and how much we need him? Why did none of my friends come to the carol service? Or why is there only one person in your office who's up for reading um, Uncover with you in the Bible? Why do the family at Christmas seem so reluctant to have even one conversation about him? And that's where Simeon goes next as he turns to Mary in verse 34 and says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And here we come to our second point. The Jewish Messiah was always planned to be a sign that reveals people's hearts. The Jewish Messiah was always planned to be a sign that reveals people's hearts. And I don't know if you noticed in, in verse kind of 34, there's a bit of a crunching of gears here as the mood changes slightly. Because in verse 33, we've got Joseph and Mary marveling at what Simeon is saying about their baby. Now he goes on to say something very, very different. It's the moment in the film when the music kind of quickly changes to something very somber and dark and foreboding. Simeon tells of how Jesus will cause many to either rise or to fall. He speaks of the rejection that Jesus is going to face. For this king to carry out his rescue mission, there will be blood on the floor, it will be costly. And on the surface, it looks surprising. And this shouldn't be the case. This shouldn't be how it happens. But it turns out that this is Isaiah kind of language again. Because years before it was written that the promised Messiah would be rejected and cause people to stumble too. It's something that is to be expected. And we've got Simeon here referring to Jesus as a sign, a sign that will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. And as you read through Luke, you get a picture of what is on that sign. A sign that says, you are lost, you are in danger, and you are in need of rescue. You are lost, you are in danger, and you are in need of rescue. And it's a sign, isn't it, that evokes a response. Either react and say, no, 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 I don't need a rescue. I'm fine, I don't need any help. Or we can react and say, that is so true. I know my heart is sick, I know I'm not right with God. I know I need rescuing. And I guess it's the same kind of response that we can have to that MRI scan when it comes back to us from the hospital appointment. It shows that we're sick and in need of treatment. And then we've got two options, haven't we? We can either just reject the sign and say, no, I'm fine, I'm not actually ill, I don't need a doctor. A bit of exercise and good food, that'll keep me healthy. 
Or you can accept the sign and take the life-saving treatment that you need. Whatever you do, you can't sit on the fence when it comes to a medical diagnosis. And Simeon's point is that how we respond to Jesus just slams open the front door to our hearts. It shows what's going on inside. Because in our pride, we just don't want help, do we? We hate to admit that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. We can sort ourselves out. We don't need a rescuer. And so Jesus becomes that offensive character because he hurts our pride. And so people stumble over him and reject him. But a heart that is humble will recognize its need for rescue, its need for the death of the Jewish Messiah in their place on the cross. Whatever you do, you can't sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. And it might be that you're here today for the first time and, and hearing these, some, of, some of these things for the first time too. And if that's the case, then today is a, as good a day as any to stop and think carefully about your response to Jesus. And do, do grab um, me or Jonathan or a friend after the service to think these things through um, while you've got the chance. And if you're a Christian here today, then I reckon this really helps when it comes to setting our expectations for evangelism in 2016. Because if you're anything like me, then the pattern probably goes something like this. You hear a talk on evangelism, and you get really excited and up for it, and you think that all your friends are going to become Christians. And so we pray for them, and we invite them to church and to events, and we speak to them. Then when it seems to fall on deaf ears, we get discouraged. And so we stop speaking at all. But knowing that the Messiah was always planned to be a sign that would be rejected helps to set our expectations right. This is going to be tricky. We will experience pushback and rejection too. Many people are going to find him offensive. And maybe you did invite you know, 15 people to the carol service and not one person came. Maybe a friend was coming along to church on and off for ages but eventually just stopped showing up. This isn't a surprise. It's always been expected. Jesus spent most of his life being rejected, even by those who he loved. It seems inexplicable at times. But at the same time, Simeon's words give us courage not to give up too. Because I wonder if you noticed, Jesus will also cause the rising of many. Many people's hearts will be revealed and they will run to Jesus not away from him. And this year, that could be your hairdresser. That could be some of those friends who bluntly turned down your invite to the carol service. That could be the family member that you've been praying for for 20 years. That could be your neighbor or your boss or your teacher or the girl who sits opposite you at school. It could be your mate who's a safe, self-proclaimed atheist. Praying for our friends and speaking, them, speaking to them is not a waste of time. Because God is in the business of humbling people's hearts so that they see their need for the Jewish Messiah and turn to him. So this year, let's not give up. Let's pray as we close. So we will lift up our hearts. We will lift up our voice. Let the nations know, Lord, you reign. Father, we thank you so much for the reminder today that the Lord Jesus did indeed come not just for the Jewish people, but 
for the whole world. Father, thank you so much that we're part of that. And we confess that so often we have such a small view of our lives and of our world, and we long and ask that you help us to see the extent and the scope of who Jesus came for, so that we might have courage and boldness this year to speak of him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's obviously early in the year, so we have two questions. Great, that's what I like to hear. Uh, thank you for the encouragement for this passage to keep going and telling all our friends about Jesus. I think most of us, lots of us would echo that too. Um, here's, here's the big question. What is the relevance of Jesus being a Jew to Jewish people? It seems obvious why for Gentiles, but it seems the power and person of Jesus is lost on the Jewish people. This seems a sad irony that they are God's chosen people. So what's the relevance of Jesus being a Jew to Jewish people? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think in terms of our response to Jewish people in the world today, I think in, in, in a way that's exactly the same as for Gentiles, those who have, if you haven't responded to Jesus in a way that accepts him as your king, then whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, your response to him needs to be exactly the same. So our heart's prayer for Jewish people who don't, haven't yet put their trust in Jesus should be, wow, we long for these guys to come to know Jesus because that's where ultimate hope and their ultimate rest is going to be found. Um, the significance of Jesus being a Jew, I think there's something really, something really amazing about uh, a Jew who becomes a Christian to have the heritage of being a Jew, but also the fact that, they, that Jesus was a Jew from, uh, from a Jewish background as well. I think there's something pretty special and I think there'd be something massively significant for Jewish people on that front as well. Um, but I think the point is, is that in terms of the storyline of the Bible, the Jewish story is part of a bigger narrative of the human race, um, and the Jewish story fits into that. And the fact that God chose the Jewish people, we don't know necessarily why he chose the Jewish people. In fact, in the Old Testament, it just said that God set his love upon the Jews because he loved them. There was no reason. They weren't special in any way in and of themselves. Um, so I think they could just marvel at God's grace in that as well.